You're listening to... No, that's not real. You're listening to The Heidi Rue Show. Yeah, that's better. Inspiring. Entertaining. Real. The Heidi Rue Show. Well, if I had like a scratch track, I think I would play it right now because... I kind of had something else in mind for the podcast this week, but we're just going in a different direction. And um, I think that it's really applicable actually to Easter since this is being published on Easter. What you're going to hear today are some stories of hope. Um, You may want some Kleenexes. I know I cried when I listened back to it when I was editing it. But I have Steve Kasha on the podcast this week, and Steve is the founder of Serve International. Serve is based in Georgia, but it's international. It's also locally local. They provide food, water, shelter, among a lot of other things, but those are the main components. And Mike and I found out about Serve years ago when we worked in radio. We were looking for an organization to get involved in, and the more that we got to know the people behind Serve, Steve and Jim and everyone else, the more that we realized we feel so honored that we could can support a company, an organization like this. They're incredible. And you'll find out as you listen to this podcast just how incredible it is. Some of the stories that Steve has are awesome. And two years ago... I went with Serve International to Kenya to visit House of Hope, which is an orphanage there. You'll hear about that in the podcast. Um, We sponsor a couple of the kids there. It was amazing. I will cry if I start telling you stories about this place. And it has been such a joy in my life. And what I would encourage you, even if you stop listening to the podcast after this, but I hope you don't, is that sometimes in life when there are things that we feel like aren't going our way. Um, If we feel like there's something missing, you know, for me, it's kids. Um, And not only that, but just kind of a consuming of, you know, perfectionism. I really deal a lot with that and um, in really finding significance in work. That sometimes those things actually can be so cured. I don't know if that's the right term, but with giving. Don't underestimate the power of giving in your life to bring you joy because there, I don't think that there's ever been a time in my life where I've given and joy hasn't come along with that. So what I would encourage you is if you, wherever you are in life right now, to just think about ways to give. It doesn't even have to be supporting serve or going to Kenya or um, or whatever, but just little ways to serve other people and to give to other people. And I think you're going to find such immense joy. But enough of me talking because Steve has some awesome stories that you're going to want to hear today. So without further ado, here's the real star of the podcast. So, Steve, I want you to tell us a little bit about how Serve even came into being. Well, first of all, let me say thanks for inviting me on today. I mean, I don't know if I can follow up with a welcome like that. So, Um, you know, I really don't know how to answer that question because I think it was one of those things that I didn't intentionally do. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think I set out to intentionally start Serve International. Um, I graduated college. And I started my own company. I started an export company shipping used clothing overseas to Africa, South and Central America. Uh, Got married. 
Um, ended up over the course of the next five years having having three beautiful kids. And and I remember waking up one day and I was thinking, okay, the, the money's starting to come in a little bit. We're doing well in business. And, you know, I've got a beautiful family, um, but I'm just not content. Mm-hmm. And and I started I started to question, like, I was like, God, if, if this is all there is in life is to making money and just feeling this way, then something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And it was crazy because... Um, one of, one of my friends from my church ended up giving me a call, and they said, hey, Steve, you own your own international company, and we want to take a mission trip, so you're qualified. I was like, well, I don't, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know if I'm qualified, but um, I went home and kind of excited about it, trying to think maybe this is the piece that, that I'm missing, and, and uh, I ended up talking to my wife, and, and we agreed together that it would be a good idea for me to take this mission trip. So uh, we ended up going to, took a group of 12 guys down to, to Mexico, and it was pretty simple. We just went in start building churches. And through the course of the next two or three years, uh, we continued to, to go down there during the summers, build churches, outreach centers, and, and coming back using some of our resources from the company mm-hmm. and uh, to fulfill some of the needs that were going on. So, so it was kind of meeting both needs for me. It was like uh, the, the need that was missing and, and you know, still being able to do business. But I, I, guess, I guess the way I would answer your question about when did Serve International come to be um, it was, it was when I had an opportunity to take a, a mission, another mission trip down to the jungles of Venezuela, mm-hmm. got a call one day, uh, from a guy that I hadn't, hadn't seen in a long time. He said, Hey Steve, he said, how you doing? I'm, I'm, I'm here in Atlanta now and I've, I've got something I want to ask you. I said, okay, so what, what do you need to ask me? And he, he said, I've got a group of 18 guys who want to go to Venezuela and on a mission trip. And, and I hear you have experience in Mexico. And again, I, you know, I went, I went home and, and talked to my wife about it. And I'm thinking, well, how am I going to explain this one going to <laughs> Right. <laughs> but it was, it was really, it was really good. Uh, she was very supportive. And a couple weeks later, I was on a, on a plane with 18 guys, flew into Caracas, which is the, the capital of Venezuela, hopped another plane, went to Ciudad Boulevard, Hopped in a vehicle, drove four hours, and at the end of that four hours, we literally, on the road, we stopped at a river. There was no more road, and it was right at the base of the, the, the jungle, and it was off of a um, tributary of the Amazon. It was a place called Orinoco River, so we spent the night there, and then we, the next morning, we got up, and we, we proceeded probably about four or five hours up into, into the jungle, now, when I, when I say jungle, I mean, you're talking anacondas, you're talking piranha, uh, crocodiles, um, anything. Just your normal household pets, right? <laughs> exactly, all your normal household pets. But uh, the, so, so we went up there. We ended up doing some dental and some medical outreach through the course of the next couple of days, you know, sleeping in hammocks, mosquito nets. I mean, real jungle. Well, the thing I remember most was uh, at the end of that time we were there, we were getting ready to leave. And there was this little short man. He was the... the I guess he was the chief of the tribe. He was the Yukwana tribe. And he probably was about four foot ten. Mm. And he was very proud of his surroundings. So he took us into this jungle and uh, he wanted to show us. And when I said, okay, picture this. I'm, I'm, I'm probably dating my age here, but the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies. Uh, yeah, you don't know. I don't. Like, <laughs> do but the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies. <laughs> and you have, the, you have the jungles, you have the the... You know, vines hanging down. You got monkeys swinging everywhere. I mean, it was the real deal. Yeah. And he said, through an interpreter, he said, just be careful where you walk. He says they have this snake, which is called a four-nose. It's only about two or three feet long, uh, but they're very poisonous. I said, well, how poisonous? 
And he goes, well, within 25 to 30 minutes, he says, most people die. Oh. And I'm thinking. Okay. A little poisonous. Yeah. I don't yeah. do snakes. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> so um, we walked through the jungle and it was, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, I stepped over this log and I was looking and just looking at everything. And I looked at this man standing across from me and his eyes just got huge. He looked at me. I looked at him. His eyes got big. I looked down and there was a four-nosed snake that was slithering across my boot. Goosebumps. Yeah. Goosebumps. And I couldn't go I couldn't go backwards because the log was there that I just stepped over. I couldn't go forwards and I just froze. And I started having all these thoughts that were just going through my head. It was like, God, really? Mm-hmm. Really? You're going to take me this far just to to end it this way? Right. And as that snake turned around and coiled to strike, all of a sudden the sugar cane pole came out of nowhere and took that snake and flew him about 20 feet away. And it was that chief of that tribe. And he took that, that sugar cane pole and he beat that snake. And I was thinking, God, I said, what? I'm not going to lie to you. It, 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 it kind of messed me up. Yeah. Because here we are out in the middle of the jungle, uh, no communication, no anything. Before cell phones, right. really, right? Yeah. So <laughs> a few years ago. But I remember getting back to our base camp the next day, and, and here's where it kind of picks up a little bit. But I was, I was laying in my hammock, and, and one morning I woke up, and I just felt like God was speaking to my soul. I just felt like he was just, I mean, he was alive in me. Mm-hmm. And it, was, it wasn't an audible voice, but it was just one of those things that you just knew that you knew. And I felt like he was telling me that I was to start a ministry, and that if I just would seek his face in everything that I did, that he would take care of my needs, and that there would be seasons of people coming and going within the ministry. Mm. But the vision that he gave me to feed people and to come alongside of people and use that as a platform to share his word, that that vision would always be mine, and, mm. and not to let other people determine that vision, but he would bring them at the right time. And, and I guess I did what any, what any responsible person would do. And I, I turned around for the next six months, I ran. <laughs> like literally, I, just, right. I, I ran from the vision. And uh, I finally gave into it. And um, after a long talk with my wife, Dawn, we, um, we decided that we would do whatever was necessary to, to fund this ministry, to start this ministry, mm-hmm. and that we would take the resources from our business that God had blessed us with and we would continue to feed that in. Mm. So I know that's kind of a long answer, but that was that was really about how we how we started it. Wow! And now back in the day, or I guess until just even recently, a hundred percent of whatever people gave um, went to serve international because your business had funded it. That's recently changed, but not by much. Is that correct? No, or? actually, okay. it, it still is a hundred percent. We're okay. we're very fortunate right now. Um, after 18 years of ministry, that 100% of all the donations that come in, uh, so if you, if you give money to, to the food or to our mm-hmm. orphanage in, in, in Kenya or whatever you give money to, um, 100% of that passes through to the actual mission and ministry of that. Um, and then we have my company and some, some other companies that have partnered up with us to, wow. to cover overhead and expenses of the ministry. Which is incredible. I mean, that's very rare. So right now, Serve is in Kenya. Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic, here, local, which we can talk about that too a little bit later. Um, And then also now in Cambodia. Is that official or just in the works? Okay. Actually, I just got back from a trip from Cambodia um, and Kenya Mm -hmm. all in a matter of a month. But yeah, we started doing some outreach, uh, I guess it was last year, into Cambodia. And everything that we do with Serve International starts with food. 
we develop a food um, blend that for eight cents a meal you can feed a person for for a day. And in a big shipping container, what we do is when we ship food to, say, Cambodia, uh, we have a million meals that we, that we ship over at mm-hmm. a time. So what we do as a mission and a ministry is when we go into Cambodia, we use the food as the prevention of sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also to educate people because people are so desperate over there. What they mm-hmm. do is they will sell their children. So we'll go into mm-hmm. these communities and these villages and we will start to educate them on on these things, but then we'll also provide this food for them because they have these needs, and the reason that they sell their kids is, is because they need to eat. Because they need, and we have great mm-hmm. partners on the ground. Hmm. Um, we saw some amazing things this past trip. Hmm. Um, so it's it's we've been very fortunate to to have the connections that we do, and it's 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 turning out good. It's still kind of new the past couple of years, but. Uh, we're gaining a lot of momentum. I'm excited about. Wow! And then in Kenya, how did that even start? I mean, I know you've I know you've told me the story, but for everyone else that hasn't heard the story, how did that start? Uh, oh gosh, um, I'll kind of give you the short short version okay. of it. Uh, about ten years ago, I ended up getting a phone call um, from another friend of mine who was working with me in the ministry, and he says, "Hey, Steve, we've got to go to Dawsonville, uh, Georgia, up here, and there's a man from Kenya who's speaking." And I said, "Well, you know, I really don't want to go listen to somebody speak." Uh, on Kenya, I have no intention of going to Africa. I do business in Africa, and I really just, I, I, I don't have a desire. Yeah. <laughs> so I went, uh, and I heard this man speak, and he, through the course of the night, about two hours, he was telling me about all of these these children, these people that were mm-hmm. starving and dying and and just hungry and the sick and poverty. And I'm thinking, I'm looking at him, I'm going, yeah, okay, um, maybe I believe you, maybe I don't. Um, but what had happened was, uh, we got down to the end of the night, and we went up to shake his hand, and i going through the line, very pleasant, and I reached my hand out to shake his hand, and I shook his hand, and he wouldn't let go. And he says, you need to go to Africa. I said, no disrespect. I said, but I, ha- <laughs> I have no intention of going to Africa, right. to, especially to Kenya. He said, no, you need to, and he says, we need to talk. So we ended up in Waffle House up in Dawsonville that night, and we had a two-hour conversation. At the end of that two-hour conversation... I had committed myself to going to Kenya within the next six weeks. And the great thing was I also volunteered the guy who brought me there. So he was. <laughs> you're like, you're coming with me. And then that's exactly what I did. So when I was younger, I had a vision to feed people. And I, and I, and I felt like God was, was calling me to feed people. And, and, and if, this, if this man was telling me the truth, mm-hmm. which I doubted, I was going to bring food with me and I was going to, you know, to be prepared. So I started researching a food blend and I, and I work with... Uh, an organization out of Texas that, that created a, a very healthy, nutritious food blend for USAID, USAID. Mm-hmm. And we partnered up with them, and I took about 10,000 meals over with me. So about six weeks later from this conversation, I was on a plane to Africa, and this man shows up, and I had about 10,000 meals in duffel bags. Um, it was crazy. We had, we had a ton of duffel bags. Uh, well, he proceeded to take me through the, the capital city of Kenya, which is Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And we went through some of the biggest slums in, in Kenya, Kibera, Mathera slum. And, and some of those were where you've yes, actually where been. Yes, been, yeah. So you've seen that firsthand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, he proceeded to take me through there. We saw sickness. We saw poverty. Mm-hmm. We saw some horrible things, some mm-hmm. things that people should never have to live in or never have to, to experience in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know what I'm talking about. I totally do, yeah. So, but I went back to him after three days and I said, his name was Simon. I said, Simon, I said, I, I appreciate everything you've shown me, but you have not shown me the things that you said of people dying. He said, oh, 
He said that's up in the northwest corner of Kenya near Sudan, Ethiopia, Uganda, but nobody goes there. I said, well, I want to go there. He says, mm-hmm. you can't go there. I said, well, why can't I go there? You told me about this. He says, there's no roads. And the roads that they do have are full of bandits from Uganda, and they'll kill you. I'm thinking, okay. I said, well, how do you get there? He says, I charter a plane. So I did the most irresponsible thing I've ever done, (laughs) and I pulled out my wallet. I gave him a credit card that did not have any money on it, probably. And the next morning, we were in the town of Lodwar, up in the northwest corner of Kenya. And we drive, we we land on this dirt runway in in a chartered plane. I get out, and there's four big guys standing there in Land Cruisers saying, are you Steve? I said, I am. They said, come with us. And I'm thinking, what have I got myself into? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the really cool thing was, is they ended up uh, taking us all around Mm -hmm. that that area. And I saw the things that they were talking about. Mm -hmm. I saw the the sickness. I saw the poverty. I saw the hunger. I saw the starvation. Um, I, I held a baby that two hours later died. Um, had a chance to pray over them. But the end of our trip, uh, we had some of this food with us. So we went into this little village and we did a food distribution. And there was a lady that was standing in the back of the line and she kept watching me. And she finally came up to uh, the line and it was very pleasant. I gave her food. She smiled. And then I ended up uh, just sharing a little bit of my testimony, a little bit of my faith with the people. And I said, God willing, I said, we'll, we'll come back with more people and more food. So we head back to the States to the day, five weeks to the day, I was back in Africa with 12, 12 wow. more people, 20,000 meals, and we went back to the same village. And the really, the really neat thing about this is that lady, that same lady was there, mm. and she came through the line again, and she had big tears in her eyes. And I asked my interpreter, I said, is she, is she excited that we brought food? Mm. And he said, no, he, he, she's crying and she's excited because nobody ever comes back. Yeah. And I know that I've shared that story with you before, but um, what an impact. Mm. Uh, and I think it was at that point that I knew that we just had to continue to, to go and use food as our platform to reach these people. Everything that we do starts with food. Mm. So. Yeah. I do love that story. That's one of my favorite. And, um, and it is so true. You hear about all these organizations, especially. Well, let me back up. So for those of you that don't know, um, I have been to Kenya twice with Serve, and I hope to go back again with Serve. Um, so I've been to some of these villages that Steve's talking about. Um, I remember talking to one lady in the village, and she said, um, I said, well, where do you get your food? And she said, well, this was the one that we went to that's about 20 minutes outside of Uganda. Yeah, that, that was the village of Kakiri. Right, yes. And she said, well, um, you know, fruit, which I'm like, where? what kind of fruit is out here in the <laughs> middle of the desert? There's like nothing out here. Um, and she said, or we can walk like, I guess, a day into town. It'll take like 12 hours or so to walk into town. Yeah. And then... Um, can we can sell mats or whatever to get money for food or we can wait on relief organizations and i said well before serve how often when these relief organizations come in and i think she said maybe once a year maybe if that yeah and they would just drop food and then leave and literally they would just bring in bags Mm -hmm. um these world relief programs would just bring in bags of food and it was almost kind of like a feeding frenzy. They just drop them mm. and people would fight for this. And, um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not there as a feeding program to, to save all of Africa, mm-hmm. but the places, and you know, this, the places that we go to and that we choose to invest 
everything starts with the food. We go in and we start doing and, and working with them with food. And we've got great partners there. We've got some pastors that go in and, mm-hmm. and work with these people. So we'll go in with the food first, which then after time leads to us putting a well in. Mm-hmm. And then after time on that, um, we'll, we'll go in and put a church or a school or an outreach center. And when you do that, that creates community, mm-hmm. and then you have the opportunity to feed into their lives, to help them to do things. Um, when you put food and water into a place, especially in some of these desolate areas, uh, it, it's amazing what happens. And when you do it under the right context of what we do, of what Serve does from a from a spiritual background, mm-hmm. and we have pastors who go in there, um, it, it's it's truly amazing because what will start off as a community of maybe ten or eleven people. Uh, eventually turns into two or three hundred, and uh, that's what we've experienced in probably about four or five villages now. Mm, that's awesome. Well, in Kenya, in Lodwar specifically, you also established um, an orphanage, House of Hope, and um, Mike and I we sponsor several of the kids. And I just have to say that this is the funniest thing. So. I think when we first started, like uh, giving, you know, investing and in serve. I heard about House of Hope, and so there was one girl that I really wanted to sponsor there. Her name is Mercy, and she was older. And so I told Mike, I'm like, hey, I'm going to sponsor this kid, you know, if you want to, you know, whatever. And he's like, okay, well, you know, just do your thing. And then after a little while, he started going, well, there are a lot of other kids that need sponsors, too. And I was like, yeah. And so then he just started sponsoring more and more kids. (laughs) And pretty soon I was like, oh, my gosh, Mike, how many kids are we going to sponsor with this? Um, and I I can't even remember the exact number. Well, it started now, off I with a, almost a basketball team, and now we're yes. up to, I think, a baseball team yes. plus. Yes, so. which is awesome, and I love that about Mike. The only thing is is that um, so we write letters to the kids, which is amazing. But I think last year you guys were like, okay, let's write all the letters for the year, like in one full swoop. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so then that way you can distribute it, you know, which is a great idea. But then we were like, Oh, shoot. (laughs) That's a lot of letters. So we're like, okay, divide and conquer. And then trying to like make sure that we're personal on every single one. I think we had had you write letters for probably five or six holidays, Yes, you did. So yeah, multiply that by the kids. And that was, that was a lot, but it was great. Mike and I just made a night of it and um, our fingers hurt a little bit afterwards, but it was okay. (laughs) Yeah, date night. Um, So anyways, and we, I've been to House of Hope and um, it's just one of the, it's one of the best things in my life that I've been able to experience. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, Can you share a little bit about House of Hope and how that started? Yeah. Um, when we first started with House of Hope, it was about eight years ago. Been in, in Kenya 10. We did uh, House of Hope, well, actually nine years now. Uh, we started off with 15 kids, continually grew that. Um, and then we got to a point where we hit about 47 kids uh, about a year and a half ago. And I think that was on one of your first trips. Uh, we, yeah, we, I think we were sitting at about 47, 47 kids. And, and during that time, mm-hmm. uh, we had decided on that trip that you and I actually took together, we had uh, decided that we were going to bring in 10 more children. And, and I've just got to share this with you real quick because it was, it was probably one of the most impactful trips that I've, that I've taken. And we had gone ahead of time to each of these villages and we had identified these children we meet with their caretakers because all of our orphans are truly orphans. They've mm-hmm. lost their parents to typhoid, malaria, HIV. Uh, some of it was violence, um, cattle rustling, just, I mean, you name it. 
um, harsh, harsh circumstances out there. The 10 that we had identified, we went through, and over the course of two days, we picked up those, we picked up those kids. But there was one child that was not on our list, but we, that we heard of, and his name was William. Mm-hmm. And I know, you, rem- William. I yes. know you remember him. Uh, he was not on our list, but we had found out that he was three years old and uh, lack of better words, I want to say almost, I don't want to say slave labor, but he mm-hmm. was having to take care of his family or his, his caretaker, which was uh, his grandmother. And he was three years old and he was making brooms. And we heard that he was malnourished. We heard that he mm-hmm. was um, not responding to, to things and, th- and that he was on the verge of death. So I remember pulling up, driving up to this village. It was a thatch roof, I mean a thatch, thatch hut, and there was a wall. And there was a wall, and I saw this figure behind this wall, and I knew it was a little kid. So I walked over around this, around this wall, and there stood William. And William was, was dirty. He, he, actually, he was filthy. Mm-hmm. Um, he was not responding to any talk, any commands. He, his stomach was bloated, mm-hmm. uh, parasites. Uh, he probably hadn't eaten in, in days. I don't think he had ever bathed. And the thing that stood out on, on that to me was he had this, it looked like a nail, but it was actually a spike. And they had driven this spike or this nail through a bottle cap, a Coca-Cola bottle cap. Why? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. But he was taking that and he was using that as a tool to make brooms and tie off brooms. And if he didn't make a certain amount of brooms that day, he didn't eat. He didn't eat, yeah. So the equivalent of one broom would probably be a handful of maize. And mm-hmm. when you say maize, corn kernels like you would feed your animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would take that and they would grind that up. But I remember having you stand there. My son Blake was on mm-hmm. that team. And I remember calling both of you over there. And I remember looking at your face and, and I asked you to get down on your knee and, mm-hmm. and just, just comfort him. Mm-hmm. And you sat there and you held on to him. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you remember that. Mm-hmm. I totally do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I remember just looking into your eyes, looking into his eyes. And, and I think the reason that that was so impactful for mm-hmm. me was it wasn't planned. It wasn't one of our stops. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't have time to process it. And I saw it in its most pure and raw and mm-hmm. authentic state. It was nothing that I had a chance to prepare for. Mm-hmm. And I was looking at that and I was like, you know, what we do in Africa makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And what we do and what other people do by, by traveling there like yourself and just being able to show up and love on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember you grabbing him and, and walking him to, to the vehicle mm-hmm. that we mm-hmm. got in mm-hmm. and um, taking him back to our house of hope. And the coolest thing is, is to be able to travel a year from that date back to House of Hope and to be able to see William now healthy and happy and playing with the other kids. And like you said, when you looked into his eyes, I mean, I remember his eyes so clearly that day. I remember they were eyes that were just like lost and hopelessness. That's what I would say is if you could ever look at somebody's eyes and see this is a picture of hopelessness, it was William's eyes that day. But then being able to go back a year and seeing after just being at the House of Hope, those eyes turned to hope totally. Oh, yeah. Smiling, laughing, oh my gosh. playing with other children. Yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, a year later that you went back. So we had him when he was three. And then when you went back again, mm-hmm. he was four. Well, I recently just returned from a trip about a month ago. 
and now his English is coming up. <gasps> and so the great and amazing thing was when I when I showed up at the at the House of Hope, he come running to me, mm-hmm. and he had the he had the biggest smile on his face, and he reached out his arms, he opened up his arms, and he wrapped them around my waist, and he said, Steve. <sighs> And for somebody who was almost to a point of death, to have that hope and to have that that security of knowing that he has a safe place, that he has mm-hmm. food, that he has meal, that he has schooling, that he has education, that he has somebody there at this House of Hope. We have 20 staff at our House of Hope, and each one of those, those staff love on these kids mm-hmm. and, and nurture them. But you could only imagine, you know, I don't share this too often, but... You know, I kind of have a soft spot, and yeah, yeah so I, I I probably cried a little bit, maybe I don't know, but don't tell anybody. Um, but it's, yeah, it was just between you and I, just just yeah, between us. Don't worry. Um, but it it was amazing, mm. and that was one of those moments where I saw it from start to where it is now, and it's like sometimes you get caught doing what you do for so long mm. in in workplace or in a ministry or in an organization that you sometimes forget why you do it. Mm. And I think that the reason that had such an impact on me was is that I was reminded of the mm-hmm. difference that that Serve International is making, and and the sponsors, the people mm-hmm. that who come alongside of us, that travel with us, that donate to us, that donate to food, to water, to shelter, mm-hmm. and just change these kids' lives forever. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was it was just very, it was very good for my soul. Mm. It's so cool, too, to be able, and I know probably most people over the course of their life have heard about, like, um, other organizations where you can sponsor or friends and things like that and write to them. Um, And I had done that in the past growing up. But the coolest thing was is to actually be at House of Hope when those kids got the letters from their sponsors. Because you guys, it would be like, just somebody came and said, Christmas for everyone. I've got tons of toys in here. Come on, get it. And these kids would run and they would read the letters. And one of the coolest things um, about that was there was one girl, Sylvia, there who her sponsor is Mama Jan, who I've had on the podcast right. here. And and I, as a sponsor, I've always thought, well, what do I say in these letters? Like, I don't know how to relate to them. You know, at that point, I hadn't even been there to, to meet them in person. And Sylvia, she couldn't read the letter, and so she had me read it for her. And Mama Jan just talked about her life, like like Sylvia was her best friend. And she talked about her business and just things, you know, going on in her life. Sylvia had these just humongous tears rolling down her face because she was so happy. You know, I mean, she just loved it. And these kids, they save the pictures from all their sponsors. They save the letters from all their sponsors. They remember the sponsors' names. They, you know, remember things about the lives of their sponsors. Like, it, there's no disconnect, and I think sometimes even when we, you know, want to do things like this, you're like, I, it's so hard. You're miles, miles away, and you don't see that you are creating this relationship with somebody, and that right. that simple letter means the world to those kids. And, and just like you said, they actually do. They put all these letters, these <coughs> pictures in their foot lockers, mm-hmm. and they'll take you over to their foot locker, and they'll yes. show you all the letters from the past six, seven, eight years, mm-hmm. or some of the new ones. They're so proud of these letters. And uh, I think in our busy lives, we, we have people coming and going in and out of our lives all the time. And, you know, we recognize faces, but we may not mm-hmm. always remember a name. 
there is not one child there who does not know their sponsor, who does not know their story, and that they actually pray for them yeah. during the course of the day. Yeah. It's because nobody comes and goes from House of Hope. Mm-hmm. You know, so they the, the relationships that they build, they hold on to. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you another question just about about founding serve and about creating this um this nonprofit that does all this great work what do you feel like is the biggest challenge you know the biggest challenge i mean that's that's kind of a hard question i think the day to day of just getting people to understand that you know we're we're doing this for for other people mm-hmm. that when 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 we ask we're not asking for ourselves yeah. but just the day to day grind of creating the I like to tell people that we try to create the opportunity for for people to see and experience life in a new way, like when they travel with us. And I think that's always a challenge because I think that we get stuck in our in our in our jobs, in our dead end jobs sometimes, and our lives become routine and we become complacent. And then we we offer them, try to get them to understand that there there's there's something more. And that I think that we've all have this need mm-hmm. that that's been inbred in us to to give. And that we all want to be a part of something that's significant. And I think just to to have people understand that and realize that, um, I think that's one of the biggest messages that we try to get out, that you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. No matter how bad your circumstances are, there's always somebody's circumstances that are worst. And just to realize that how, how blessed we are as 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 a society, how blessed we are here in America, how blessed we are at other parts around the world, that our struggles may be bad, but unless you've been there or tasted it, touched it, seen it, it it's hard to get that message out. Mm-hmm. What has been the biggest blessings for you? I think it's the the biggest blessing, I think, would probably have to be just the people that you come in contact with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would think that it would be, oh, about helping these poor kids mm-hmm. in Africa and this. I think the blessing for me comes when I can take people like you to Africa Mm -hmm. or I can take people like you on a trip or anybody and just to see their spirit come alive and Mm -hmm. to see and to empower them and to let them know that, hey, it goes back to, hey, you can make a difference. And I think that that truly is one of my biggest blessings Mm -hmm. and to create that opportunity for them to see life, like Mm -hmm. I said, in a a whole new way. Um, And then having them come back and, and just have that spark, have that glimpse of who God is. Yeah, yeah. So if people wanted to get involved with Serve, um, what are some different ways that they can they can be more a part of Serve? You know, um, I think the obvious answer would probably be, you know, you could take a mission trip. But mm-hmm. we understand that not everybody can take a mission trip. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everybody wants to. I would say... If you really dig it down to a little deeper level, I, I would say maybe go to the website and, and take a look. It's, it's serveone.org. It's S-E-R-V-O-N-E.org. Mm-hmm. But just kind of skim through that. Take a look at, at all the children that are on there that, that are opportunity to sponsor. But but it goes back to uh, maybe coming along alongside of Serve and, and working something towards our, our feeding programs, our water programs, our orphans, and, and then allowing us to to then feed into your lives through reporting back to you and, and uh, sharing stories with you. And, and it's about community. It's about doing life together. So 
I would say if you can't take a trip, one of the things we, we would encourage is just for people or businesses or whoever to come alongside of us and, and experience it that way. Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today and the, the podcast ending up to be a lot longer and more in-depth than you imagined. <laughs> so thanks for being a good sport with all that. No, thank you. This is uh, <laughs> it, it's this has been fun, so, so thank you. Yeah, sure. As a Georgia peach, she loves pleasing people, so she wants to know how she can improve the show. So let her know either on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Heidi Rue. Also be kind, because she's my wife. And if she has a bad day, then I'm really going to hear about it. 